0: Welcome to the Navigating Disruption Podcast. I'm your host, Shaquille Barmel. I'm the CEO of Ocean Blue Strategic and partner with The Summit Group. I'm a coach, consultant, and speaker, and I help leaders, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals make an impact through improved performance. In this podcast, I share insights and interviews with interesting leaders to define practical lessons that you can use to make an impact in the face of uncertainty. We are proud to be brought to you by the Summit Group. We help companies increase revenue and deepen customer relationships by moving from sales excellence to authentic business relevance through engaging learning experiences. I remember at the end of Obama's speech, the final one, as he was ready to leave office, he was talking about how the internet and social media made it easier for people to dig into and validate their own views. The internet makes it easy to find out what you are looking for, and without a very open mind, people tend to look for information, insights, and ideas that validate their own view of the world. In that same speech, Obama also spoke optimistically about the future. He said that if you study the history of the world, humankind always finds a way to move forward and beyond the challenges and limitations of the present time, both natural and man-made. As much as nefarious forces and actors enter the scene from time to time over our history, human ingenuity and the desire to improve the quality of life eventually overcomes. This is where my next guest and this episode fits in. Farhan Ladani is the CEO and co-founder at Digital Public Square. He and his company are working hard to leverage the power of the internet and the field of behavioral economics to gently nudge people to seek different perspectives that challenge their current views. If he and others like him are successful, we may just start coming together from the polar ends of our ideologies to improve life for future generations. Enjoy the conversation. Farhan, how are you? I'm
1: well. It's a beautiful sunny day in Toronto today. I have a window that overlooks the little post stamp backyard that we have in <laughs> uh, the east end of the city where my kids spend an inordinate amount of time, which is a good thing. My wife yeah. said to me, when we were looking for a house, I really want a parking spot, a bathroom on the main floor and a backyard. Oh. And I kind, of, I kind of looked at her like, I'm not sure that we're going to win the lottery three times in a row
2: yeah. in
1: finding a house in Toronto in the peak of where the market was going but we lucked out. And here I am looking at a little backyard. I was dubious about it, about how important it was. And I can't tell you how almost every day since we finally got this house, I'm thankful that she was uh, insistent on the need for it because man, Mm. it's an incredible bonus for us. And then for the kids through the pandemic, lifesaver.
0: Yeah. It's just amazing how when you're in a relationship with somebody, it just somehow works that They see things that you don't and you see things that they don't. And if you pay attention and just trust, you usually end up in the right place.
1: I couldn't agree more. Uh, And it takes me, I'm slow. And so it takes me time to recognize the foresight that she has on some issues. I'm very much less attuned to, but eventually I come around. It took me a hot minute until we got here for the backyard thing. And I'm sure there's a dozen others. So if she's listening, we should probably not send this to her, actually. I think we're better off not sending this to
0: her. (laughs) Well, I can definitely relate because I've been married a long time now and it's still the case that it usually I I argue a little bit, defend a little bit, but eventually she's proven right. And sometimes it takes a few (laughs) years and I try to acknowledge it sometimes just for my own character building, but it is hard. Yep. to do that. So that's great that we start off with that acknowledgement of our significant <laughs> others and partners. <laughs> Just
1: how important that is.
0: Yeah. So I, I do have to allow my listeners, this is obviously an audio podcast, but I look at the screen, I look at your image, and I want people to imagine what I'm looking at. So on the left-hand corner, at least on my screen, I see the logo for Digital Public Square, which is great because we're going to talk about Digital Public Square and what that is. And then you've got these beautiful yellow glasses. And I have to ask, given how much time we spend on Zoom, I'm sure you're doing the same. Tell me about the decision to actually get the yellow, bright yellow glasses. So I can tell you
1: two parts to this story. There's two parts to this story. First, this this is my pandemic prize, which is what I like to call it. So yes, I was spending a absolutely shocking amount of time on video, as I know all of us were. And it's funny, I found myself, and my days have been typically long. So throughout my career and work, I haven't had short days. At least I haven't taken many short days. Most of it, I suspect, is self-inflicted. But nevertheless, long days are are things that I'm, I'm pretty used to. But I found in April, like it was probably late April, where I was walking away from the day just slaughtered. I was mm-hmm. exhausted at the end mm-hmm. of the day. And I, and there you know, 12, 14 hour days because the pandemic and the work we were doing at the time meant that we were pretty full on. But even then, 12, 14 hours, 16 hour days even are not totally abnormal to the last, you know, 10, 20 years of work for me. But I was finding myself exhausted. Now, it may have been the, the stress of the pandemic and the uncertainty and all of those things. But, but part of me was wondering if it's just being on video all the time. And, and then I started doing a little bit of reading about this. What I learned through some of that was that video is exhausting in different ways than regular face-to-face engagements, right? So the fidelity is lower, mm-hmm. but your brain is trying to fill in all of these blanks for information you would otherwise get if we were sitting in a room together. I'd mm-hmm. be looking at you. I wouldn't be just I wouldn't just be looking at you shoulder up, I'd be yeah. looking at you as a person, and I'd I'd be trying to detect your, not explicitly, but unconsciously, trying to detect your body language and figure out if what I'm saying is making you happy or sad or making you upset um, or otherwise. And our brain is doing this on a regular basis. But video is low fidelity. First of all, the the image is shoulder and
2: head. Mm -hmm.
1: And then compound that with your brain going over time, trying to detect all these signals that it would otherwise typically be able to see. And that's one. And then the second was, I found myself exhausted looking at myself all the time.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Because
1: I'm not, if I'm sitting with you in a room, Shaquille, I'm not typically staring at myself next to you. That would be both weird and awkward if if something can be both. Yeah. And so you're staring at yourself the whole time. Yeah. And so I was getting tired of staring at myself, first and foremost. And I went into a glasses store that a buddy of mine had said, they make indestructible frames. And so I was picking them up because he lives in another part of town. I said, sure, I'll get them for you. So I go in the store and I look around and the store has one, one type of frame. They've got one type of frame, they have, they have one. Most glasses yeah. stores you walk in, there's you know, hundreds and thousands. There's one type of frame, but it's like a rainbow of colors. Ah. Every color you could imagine, one frame, every color you could imagine. Huh. I've got two five-year-old girls who like to destroy glasses. He said, indestructible glasses, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, And so I'm looking around and take the video out and take the phone out. and That's what I call product market fit, right? <laughs> 100%, 100%. I take the video phone out and I'm like, girls, which one should I buy? Yeah. And one of them says, um, you should get those. Now, I think she's pointing at the yellow glasses.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think she's pointing at the yellow glasses. And I'm like, okay, this seems crazy. But let, let's see if it makes her happy. So I go in, I say, okay, get me the glasses. I come home with the frames the next week. And she says, I told you to get orange. <laughs> and so I'm sitting here now with these crazy yellow glasses. I, I can it. choose from a hundred colors. Yeah. I walk in with crazy yellow glasses. And yeah. She says, I told you to get orange. <laughs> so now I'm stuck with these yellow glasses, but then I decide I'm gonna put them on my face. Yeah. And every Zoom call since then, yeah. Typically starts with a funny smile being like, those are really funny. I like those glasses.
0: Absolutely. What a great way to bring personality to these conversations, because you're absolutely right. When we're talking to each other live, we're picking up all sorts of signals. Yeah. And I'm going to digress for a second, because it, when you describe that, that moment of being able to pick up on all the signals, not consciously, but we are picking up from body language and things like that. It reminds me of a, a new book that I'm reading, actually recommended to me by a mutual friend of ours called The Extended Brain or The Extended Mind. Have you heard of this book? Okay. I don't think so. Very What's new. The it? Extended Mind. The idea is this recognition that our brain actually specifically in the days that have happened and the days now, our brains are at the point where it's very hard to make them push them any harder. Okay. Just if we assume that all of our thinking happens in our brain, it feels like a very, it's a limited scenario. But if we recognize that actually we think outside of our brain, Mm
2: -hmm. which
0: means we get information from other people, from subtle cues, from body language, from our sensing of other people's emotions and processing those emotions ourselves, that is actually how we think that's actually how we pick up knowledge and we grow as individuals and I thought that was really cool because you made that connection with that idea of when you have a conversation live it's very different you have so many more cues you have more potential to think outside your brain and so you've provided an additional cue here which gives me a message a signal about you allows a conversation where I can pick up more information so a lot, those yellow glasses are doing a lot of work. So
1: it's now in the audiobook list. Next up for the read. Yes. I and want chapter
0: four myself. It's worth it.
1: Okay. It's so worth it. it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think if we think a little bit about what differentiates us people from mm-hmm. all the computers around us that help us do all the things that are wonderful. Like get an audiobook fi- 15 seconds after you told me the name. It's now yeah. in my, it's in my, it's magic, right? It's, yeah. it's kind yeah. of like magic. I have this yeah. book. You just talked about it. I have this yeah. book Exactly. and you, I can catch up to where you are by tonight. And we could be listening to the exact same thing and yeah. having a conversation tomorrow about what we're
0: learning
2: together. It's and amazing. Remarkable. Amazing.
0: Absolutely yeah. right. It, and not only that, but just like I was at a birthday party last week where this friend of ours told me about this podcast where this author was being interviewed. If yeah. you want the podcast, it's Ezra Klein's podcast, New York Times podcast. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, the, the author, Annie Paul Murphy, was interviewed. She's the author of the book. If you want to listen to that, we'll be caught up even faster. But she told me about this. I'm talking to her. As I'm talking to her, I just did what you just did. And I added it to my podcast list. Yeah. yeah. The next morning, I listened to it. The next yeah. day, I ordered the book. Yeah. And... In fact, later that day, she said, oh, by the way, this is the podcast I mentioned. I said, are you kidding? I've already listened to it. I've already <laughs> read the book. And, uh, and I just passed it on to you.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. It's like magic. And I think that, so there's like, there's three ways we, we can take this conversation. But coming back to your coming back to your comment about the extended brain, I'm looking forward to reading it. But the premise that you started with in that there's all sorts of information that we're processing any yeah. time it resonates with me for a couple of reasons. One, if you think about the computers and how they help us, yeah. you know, I think one of the things that really differentiates us is feelings, Yeah, they're feelings. I mean, that's, the, that's one yeah. of the like key differentiating characteristics, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And so I think in many ways we're feeling machines and we make Oof. decisions on the basis of feeling all the time.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: mm-hmm. often we try in conversations and in sharing of information and knowledge to get through the cognitive process of getting yeah. people to, to listen and understand and, and consume what we're trying to say when the gateway is so often feelings. And, yes. and as a consequence, that A, differentiates us from the, the machines in such remarkable ways, Absolutely. but also speaks to like the, the way in which we process information. Because oh. what we are seeing, smelling, feeling, consuming has an effect on how we feel. And so often For that's something sure. that's tied to our our views opinions and beliefs
0: for sure think about the song that triggers a memory and the memory that triggers uh what did we learn in that moment and what did we change because we learned that in that moment and the reminder that oh yeah i remember i learned that before maybe i should practice that a bit more now i forgot about it kind of thing and what you just talked about the feelings drive so much basically that's i think one of our first chapters and i love that you haven't even read the book and you're already and it's because it's something that we hold to be we know it's true. Empathy is one she she talks about. Empathy essentially is us picking up on the emotional cues that the other person is giving us. Feeling those emotions ourselves because we're picking it up on the other person. Mm -hmm. Sending the conclusions and insights from those feelings to our brain which then translates our ability to empathize with that. But the cues for the empathy actually don't come from the brain picking up anything first. It comes from our bodies, our emotions, our feelings picking it up, sending it to the brain, and then it comes out in the form of empathy. So lots of ties. Look, we've dived right into a conversation here. Before we go any further, let's talk about the logo behind you. Let's talk about what you're doing right now. What's your role? What's your purpose and mission in life these days?
1: So I'm going to try and unpack each of those things because they are all related, but there are slightly different answers to -hmm. to each of them. So the work is remarkable in my privilege to work with some really smart people. Mm -hmm. And I'd say that over the course of my whole career, I've been really lucky Mm -hmm. to work with some really phenomenal people that have pushed and driven my own thinking and that of the wonderful team of people I get to work with every single day to really ask ourselves how we facilitate meaningful conversations Mm -hmm. on really difficult subjects. And so Digital Public Square was born out of a belief that you can foster really meaningful dialogue, even on the most difficult subjects, and even in the most challenging places around the world. And we've done work in about 20 countries around the world Mm. on issues that cross a whole array of social, economic, and political domains. Mm. And in that work from from gender rights to to freedom of expression to to human rights and Hmm. juvenile justice and and public health issues, particularly with respect to the work that we're doing these days on addressing the issues of vaccine hesitancy and COVID-19 mis and disinformation, the work we want to do on opioids and on the environment and on workers and and labor rights. It covers a whole array of subjects, but it comes back to a, a basic set of formative principles that you can facilitate meaningful conversations and that you can in fact leverage knowledge in a really powerful way mm-hmm. to help people overcome biases they might have mm-hmm. and and some of the negative emotions they might have mm-hmm. that that prevent people from updating their views mm-hmm. if you can engage in a really thoughtful purposeful way
2: mm-hmm. and
1: help people arrive at their own conclusions mm-hmm. and so in listening to one of your previous podcasts that you recommended to me one of them, the Hercules Meets Buddha podcast. Yeah. The, the discussion got into what, what I call the push versus pull dilemma, right? Right. Spent so much time pushing information at people. And it turns out it's actually not very effective. Um, yeah. What is really effective is pulling them into a conversation that they determine for themselves is important to them. Mm. They, take o- they take ownership in that conversation as a consequence. And it turns out if you can facilitate that in a way that helps to reduce stress, increase motivation, and give people. An opportunity not to be told that they're wrong but simply to understand that there are an array of uh, perspectives mm. on a given issue We have a much better chance at helping them both acknowledge where they might be on mm. a particular subject on any of the things we just talked about and where they might be encouraged to update their understanding as a consequence of taking in new knowledge and information
2: mm. but
1: that our but that our contemporary information environment makes that really hard so how yeah. do you cut through that and yeah. our work is our work is, how do you cut through that? How do you create an environment where people are drawn in to participation? Yeah. How do you make it short? How do you make it fun, even on difficult subjects? And how do you encourage people and motivate them to, yeah. to, take, to take in new information and knowledge? And we developed both a framework and a product to, to do that.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to give you my interpretation of what you just described. One, to validate that I get it and to to perhaps paint a different picture for some of my listeners to make sure they get it and then let it let's take the next next uh, uh, chapter here here's what i'm i'm experiencing in your name digital public square the public square part of it takes me back to the olden days where we were interacting live and we would talk to people in our communities we would have conversations about what was happening and the events of the country the events of the community and we'd have dialogue as digital communication has come to our world and fast and furious the amazing thing is that now we are now able to take that idea of connecting with individuals not just in our town but basically all over the world so there's the digital part of it and we get to Talk to somebody over Zoom, get a book recommendation, download the book recommendation, make a comment on the book recommendation, share it with somebody else in another part of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Really great things. But the problem when you talked about the push versus pull, you have a lot of pushing going on, a lot of one-way delivery of messaging, and not a lot of dialogue and engagement the way we would have had in a public square in the old days. And... What you're saying makes me think of something that stuck with me in Obama's end of term speech about the idea that more and more these days, we are able to immerse ourselves in ideas that align only with the ideas we already hold or the views we already hold. And that is very dangerous and how we have to be able to get diversity of thinking and diversity of perspectives and engage more broadly. And that's what I've taken from what you've described. Is that kind of the world you're playing in and what you're trying to do?
1: Yeah, you bet. I mean, there's this great book by Adam Grant called yeah. Think Again. And he has a wonderful job of summarizing so much of the work that we've been intuitively hmm. driving at and trying to scale. And that is that we people often hold their identity and their beliefs really closely together. Yeah. And in a world where you can continue to buy into the, the pre-existing beliefs that you might have, the things you already think, yeah, and the motivation to continue to do that on an ongoing basis is really high we're kind of genetically designed that way right yeah, There's yeah you know, if, you, if you think about the rustling in the in the bush you could either think it's a bear or you could think it's a rabbit yeah and if you think it's a, if you think it's a rabbit it turns out it's a bear you're in real trouble yeah if you, think, if you think it's a bear and it turns out it's a rabbit no big deal yeah your, your visceral response is going to be kind of designed to worry about that and be concerned about it and yeah to feed into the uh, pre-existing beliefs that keeps you safe yeah. Take that out of the, the, the bush and put that into contemporary life. And that same challenge, which is your, your design, you they designed to buy into some of these pre-existing beliefs. And now right. the availability at massive scale to consume that is yes. atomized, yes. perfectly tailored, bespoke for you communities that just yes. feed in to that pre-existing set of views. Yes. Is so high and it's basically free.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: And so, so the, can get the idea is, you for all yeah, the time.
0: The idea is that we have the kind of the ego center in our brain, the amygdala, the limbic system that is designed to keep us safe, to feel, to keep us feeling good about ourselves, to keep us protected from the saber tooth tigers of whatever hundreds of thousands of years ago. And so that kind of system in our brain, to help us continue to feel good, allow, looks uh, drives us to seek information that validates what we already believe because that feels good yep. and keeps us away from information that challenges our beliefs because that hurts a little so it's kind of organized in our brain to do that and we have to make efforts to actually challenge ourselves to grow right very cool
1: because we because this connection between beliefs and identity is yeah. so yeah. it's so tightly interwoven and when we hopefully arrive at the conclusion that those two things don't need to be so tightly interwoven. And that in fact, your beliefs can change over time as a consequence of what you are learning, what you are processing, the experiences that you have, and and a broader acknowledgement of that, that what you thought today might be different tomorrow. And that's okay. You don't have to stick to the thing that you believed yesterday because the world is changing around you. And the Uh, amount of information you can consume is so vast that it's okay to change your mind. In fact, it's probably a great thing to change your mind. And if I think about your podcast or listeners and leadership, I think it's a really important lesson for leaders mm. because so much of leadership is predicated on the boss being right. Mm.
0: The boss and the being boss right. say
1: the boss being right. The boss has got to be right, and so the boss is trying to be right all the time because that increases their credibility and it yeah. increases their currency and it increases their capital. And if they're right all the time, you're just going to believe what they have to say. Yeah. Well, sometimes that leads us into places where regardless of new information that people are exposed to, they continue down that path because they said something yesterday that they have to continue to drive right. at today, right. regardless of new information that may be out there. Right. And that you can see the stories of that across the technology space and companies that used to exist and have massive market share that today basically don't exist anymore because they weren't able to evolve oh, yeah. because they believed that their tool or their capability
2: Yeah was the thing yeah
1: double down on that a bunch of new information about how people actually behave didn't have them adjust they no longer exist today in the same way
2: yeah and so
1: that desire for leadership to be the thing which is you're always right I think we have to start changing that paradigm because the amount of information available to us around which to change our minds and update those views as a consequence of what we are learning collectively and as individuals
2: is mm-hmm. so much
1: greater than it's ever been. Okay. The power, I think the power is in like, how do you take that information? How do you assimilate it and make updated decisions? That doesn't mean you're going to change course every day. You might just stay where you are. If you're ignoring the signals around you, it's at your peril.
0: Oh my gosh. So now we're really getting into it. Now we're getting into this because what you're painting a picture of is unless you are aware, cautious, and uh, intentional about what information you consume, as a leader, you're highly at risk of ignoring important signals that allow you to do a better job as a leader for your organization, for your team. And so if I can make it really simple, and I don't want to ask you for a pragmatic example, essentially what Digital Public Square is trying to do is make it easy, maybe even a little fun to get different perspectives in a way that's less painful than it might be otherwise. Does that sound correct. like it? Correct, correct. Okay, right. make it real for me. Give me an example of one of the tough issues that you describe and how you do this. What does yeah, it look so, like?
1: So I'll take you back to last year, COVID-19. Yeah. We were doing a bunch of work at trying to understand the full array of misinformation that was available online in the spring of last year. So COVID pops up. um, It becomes obviously a a global issue in the conversations that are taking place online. We're tracking tons of narratives that are the kind of watershed of the misinformation that was out there. Bill Gates is responsible. 5G is how it gets transmitted. Vitamin C is going to cure you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. cetera. Now, some of this, of course, is malicious. People are designing content that isn't purposely designed to misinform. Yeah. I think the argue with a bigger problem is that people might be well meaning and are are redistributing some of that content because they they think it's actually going to be helpful.
2: Mm. And
1: like you, I suspect I was on a bunch of family Zoom calls early in the pandemic because it was actually one of those things that was a wonderful byproduct. You have to connect with people that you otherwise hadn't seen our motivation to find community or to enrich our community or to grow the community really high. We could do it at the flip of a button, this magic that's happening between us right now. And so you, you had to connect with family members uh, that you hadn't spoken to in a long time and these big group family calls. And what I found fascinating about this was the number of pieces of misinformation on COVID-19 That I would hear on these calls. It was literally like a a research group for us, which I would sit and listen to. And these people weren't malicious actors in black coats that were trying to push messaging to destabilize societies. There are those people and they do those things. But these are people who are well-meaning saying, if you take some vitamin C, not the tablet, you have to eat the orange because (laughs) there's a difference between the two. It's going to be really helpful to you. These are well-meaning people who are trying to help their loved ones um, spreading tons of misinformation and so how do you cut through some of that in ways that create space for people to to reconsider what some of those Mm -hmm. beliefs might be and so the way that we practically did this was we took a framework we've been developing over many years Mm -hmm. on how to address misconceptions particularly ones that might be sensitive or really challenging or really difficult Mm -hmm. and how do you help people rapidly learn Mm-hmm. Um, new information that might mm-hmm. lead to different sets of choices and behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so in Canada, we took all those narratives, we packed them into the product and we shared it online. And what we saw was really remarkable. The demand for accurate information on this issue was greater than anything we've ever seen in the mm-hmm. world before. Mm-hmm. And, and products that we produce get significant participation.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: in this case, We saw more demand than anything we'd ever seen Mm. before. We Mm. launched the first pilot on six continents. That demand drove us to consider how we might develop something that was scalable Mm. and that could be employed in in many places around the world. And so in Canada, we launched the platform as it's contagious. Misinformation spreads faster than a virus. And what you do as as an individual is it feels fun. It feels light. And what it does is it helps you learn accurate information and refute misconceptions that yeah. you might have. So that if you believe today that vitamin C um, yeah. can help, can help you help prevent your ability to get coronavirus, well, the product helps you learn in very small units of
0: information,
1: why that might not be accurate, it huh. provides you with the ability to explore that in a deeper way, if you're interested, but gives you a nugget of information in a way that's structured, that's designed um, yeah. very much to help you learn that piece of information. And the process of play, people are in fact learning new pieces of information. And when Mm. we test whether or not they're retaining it, they're retaining it really high levels. Mm. And when we test what happens as a consequence of gameplay on their acceptance of public health policies or their acceptance of social norms that will keep people safe in the context of a pandemic, It really serves the purpose of helping Mm. to drive both awareness of public health policies, for example, that might keep people safe or at taking vaccines that Mm. will prevent um, the onset of really serious illness. So in a very practical way, it has very meaningful direct effects. Mm. And it's a web application that you click off of when you go and surf the common social media sites that you might be on. We We take you on a three to five minute detour, and then we shoot you back onto the information superhighway and say, go, you know. Tell everyone that you think uh, you interesting! about what you think you may have learned if you found it useful.
0: What you just said right now makes me feel like trying to go through a bit of an experience here. So let's say that I believe a certain thing about vitamin C. Does vitamin C cure coronavirus? And I type that into Google and I get a whole bunch of search. What might I see if your platform is in the mix?
1: So you would see something that asks you to test your knowledge on Uh. the issue and to potentially get the facts or some variation thereof.
0: In a way that makes me want to do it because it seems fun.
1: It seems fun. And it's going to answer the question you have. Yeah. It's going to do both things, right? It's not a web page You're going to have to figure out where the thing you're looking for is and where the piece of information is. It it delivers to you the A, the piece of information we hope you're looking for, but B, importantly, opens you up to learning about the whole array of related information. And so what we found was that when people played, they weren't, on average, just taking one dose or two doses of good information. On average, people were taking about 11 pieces of new information. Interesting, And that's and that's huge. And that a really significant number were completing the, the whole experience.
2: Wow. And it's not
1: supposed to be long. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be playful. It's serious, but it's playful. Yeah. We call it serious play yeah. uh, because we feel like it's a way of facilitating some of those conversations where... Oftentimes negative emotions really get in the way Yeah, and biased reasoning really gets in the way. Some of the hacks that keep you motivated to consume yeah. that information from that atomized, self-identified community that feeds your pre-existing beliefs. How do we circumvent some of those hacks hmm. that are being used today
0: and hmm. open you up to new information? So who hires you? How do you get your commission to go do something? How does that work?
1: So oftentimes we're dealing with
0: a a pressing public
1: policy issue.
0: I see. Okay.
1: So oftentimes governments will come and say we need help um, with addressing this issue. And in this case, it was the government of Canada who was Mm. concerned about the rise of misinformation Mm. in Canada related to COVID-19. And appropriately was saying we should do something about this Mm. uh, because it can have really harmful effects to people. Mm. If we walked around believing some of the, the conspiracies that are out there, related to COVID-19, it can produce really harmful effect on society.
0: Mm. So the people that hire you are people that care about the public having a, a complete picture. So it's clear to me, I want to make sure it's clear for my listeners, that you're not trying to convince anybody to believe a certain thing. What you're trying to do is get people trained and persuaded to seek multiple perspectives and to question, it's critical thinking. To me, it's like my first year philosophy course, critical thinking. It's just think critically about the information you're reading, the the things you're hearing from people. And that's what you're doing is training the collective to just be more critical.
1: Yeah, you have to decide what you think is true and what is not true. What I want to do is make sure you've got an array of information that -hmm. helps you arrive at that conclusion and the best information that we think exists out there that you've got at your fingertips in a way that can ultimately increase the
0: likelihood that you make better decisions. Amazing. That's fantastic. Like congratulations for what you're doing now. It seems like such important and timely work. Is there anything else you want to say about that? Cause I want to dive a little bit into the past, but if there's anything else well, you want to say about that, please do. Only
1: that you started asking me a little bit about the logo and about about what I do and, and how I describe myself. Yes. The, the how I describe myself part is the, the father of two kids, uh-huh. which unfortunately much of what we talked about doesn't really work on because they're experts at, at opening my perspectives on both their interests so and their needs. Yeah. It turns out they're really experts at it. And so I need to learn from them. Yeah. Uh, because they demonstrate every day that I don't know what I'm talking about, apparently. <laughs> At least they're trying to convince me of that uh, every day. And so that's how I would probably oftentimes describe myself. And, and I feel like the work that we do, if I step back and I think about why you asked about purpose, it really started with a fundamental belief that if we can find better ways for us to collectively engage with one another, another, to solve our most pressing challenges. Yeah we have a much better shot at actually addressing them, at reducing the harmful effects that we have of the deep polarization that we find ourselves in today around the world. Like If you look at the Pew study recently on social cohesion and Mm -hmm. the shift post-pandemic, it is scary. Mm. It's actually scary when you had societies that had reasonably high levels of social cohesion, even though there's been a downward trend over the course of the last few decades, in many cases that were still reasonably high pre-pandemic, and what's happened post-pandemic, it is startling and very scary. I'm worried about that because I, I think that I have grown up in this country in a place that has been so unbelievably helpful mm. to the quality of life that I get to enjoy, that my kids get to enjoy. And I'm worried that our inability to talk to each other, to engage with one another, to debate, to think critically about the way in which we collectively should enhance the quality of our lives, our ability to have those conversations is increasingly compromised, even with our ability to connect mm. with one another one another through the magic that's in front of us. It's thinking about my kids and the life that I want them to have, In as lucky as I was, to have better than that, that said, this is a problem that I want to try and find a way to contribute to solving. Mm.
0: That's That's incredible, Farhan. And, you know, I spent a part of the pandemic watching Netflix, as many people did. And I came across a couple of these pretty scary documentaries. And I don't even remember the names of them, but you probably do. The documentaries that talked about some of the scandals on Facebook and the election and misinformation. And we had some of the early people at some of these social media companies talking about how the software is designed to actually maybe continue to communicate misinformation or negative views or destructive views. And so I left that feeling utter panic for the future. What you're describing as your purpose is to provide the solution, the calmness, a little bit of, it's not all bad, we can make it good to that problem.
1: I mean, I hope so. I hope we're a part of that solution, um, because I think you're exactly right. And I think the business model itself is part of the challenge, right? Right. The more provocative something is, the more deeply emotive it is, the more contentious it is, the more it drives the kind of transactional participation on social sites, which is the likes, the shares, even some of the comments at that surface level. And that drives visibility. And it turns out that visibility is the key metric for monetization. So it's related. It's if you want to make money, visibility. and time spent on a particular page is the key metric that leads to conversions and driving revenue. Yeah. And then if you think about the thing that drives visibility, and then the thing that drives time on page, the closer you get, and the the statistics are pretty clear on this, the closer you get to the content that's most harmful, the line is pretty clear. Uh The line where we would find it unacceptable the the content Mm -hmm. the more engaged the more engagement you get so the formula is designed yeah uh in a way to to foster exactly that challenge and my sense is that that has all sorts of impact for society and we want to be part we want to be part of the alternative to that which is it can be just as provocative to think alternative things too
0: yeah yeah so like this going back to what you described as push and pull again to, to make it real like for my listeners is your. On social media and just because of the way the system works and understanding who you are based on the things you do and the things you search for, it's pushing you information that will keep you on the platform longer, which is basically information that is either provocative but validates your thinking or just keeps you like going down a certain path. And what you're doing is trying to reprogram the system. And we know that's done a lot of damage. We know that it's changed the collective mind in many ways. And so what you're trying to do is at least combat the push with a little bit of pull, having people actually seek better information. And if we get enough people doing that, then we reprogram the entire collective to be much more focused on, on, on drawing new information and perspectives and diverse viewpoints. I love it
1: focus on demand, help people demand better things. And then it turns out you get better things.
0: Yeah, I love it. So good. Gosh, I can't believe our time has gone so fast. We haven't even gotten a chance. It's so important to me to cover a bit of nostalgia in each of these conversations. So I want to share a little story with you. I don't know if you'll remember it. But look, we haven't been in touch most of our lives. We haven't been friends most of our lives. In fact, You are the little brother of another friend of mine that I knew in my teens and I haven't seen her for years. But I have this vivid memory of being 15 years old, walking to a house party somewhere in Burnaby with a collection of my friends, including your older sister, and you kind of being a tag along there. I was aware of you, but didn't know you. And I knew you were a really smart kid because of the way you spoke. I had no idea who you were as a person. And then so, lo and behold, who knows, 30 years later or so, we end up working together as you volunteered for the organization uh, Organization I worked at. And that is just remarkable to me how life works. But I do want to ask you, if you can, give us the highlights of your journey from that day that we were walking. How did you end up doing what you're doing here? What are the the high points and maybe even some low points that got you to this place?
2: Well, wow,
1: that's, a, that's a good question. It's a big question. As you can tell, I like to talk a lot. So I'm going to try and think this through yeah. and be reasonably brief. I remember drawing up a plan. I don't know how old I was. I was a kid. There's no mm. way I was actually, I, you would define it as being a kid. I remember drawing up a five-year plan and being like, here's the things I'm going to do to get to where I want to go. And I don't remember what the destination was. And if you asked my mom what I wanted to be um, when I grew up, I said the book which <laughs> I still think is a pretty cool job, but leave that aside. That <laughs> was quickly followed by an astronaut. And so I'm not sure what, I'm not sure <laughs> what the relationship between those two things was in my brain, but they're closely related to one another. But so I had this plan, right? And I remember having the plan. I don't remember what was on the plan. I don't remember the outcome of the plan. But I remember having a plan. And I remember drawing out the set of steps I might take from one place to the other to get to whatever it was, the destination that I was looking for. And if I reflect back on the idea of that plan and kind of where I've arrived today, I'm humbled by the fact that the sets of experiences that we have in our lives are not always in the moment.
2: Hmm.
1: Understandable by us as to how instrumental they are at helping us get to the next stage in life. And so I remember having a job in 2012, I think it was, Um, I'm still in government uh, at the time. So I spent a a bunch of time after school in the private sector, I spent about 10 years in public service. And then I went off to grow this organization Mm. since then with some really remarkable co-founders. And I think about often, I was thinking about 2012 in particular, because it was that moment in time in that job that I really actually realized That the collection of experiences that I had in my career to date, living in Asia, working for the government in Washington, Mm D.C., having the privilege to serve in Afghanistan, the work that I was able to do in Egypt in the the shadow of the fall of the Mubarak regime, all of those experiences collectively gave me the tools and capabilities to take on the challenge I had at that time. independent of that moment, it would have been really hard to reflect on the
2: Mm -hmm. experiences
1: that I had learning about how Washington works when I was in uh, Washington, DC, in Afghanistan to really understand what community ownership looks like and why it is actually the key ingredient to getting anything done. If people Mm -hmm. don't own the outcomes, the likelihood of success is actually very low. And if Mm -hmm. you can create the conditions for people to genuinely own the outcomes because they own the process, they own the inputs, they own the outcomes, the durability, the likelihood for durability is exponentially greater. The experiences that I had learning about myself thereafter and what it takes to reacclimate to society after after kind of an intense period in life all gave me the tools and capabilities to tackle what was a pretty big challenge, at least for me at the time in 2012. But I hadn't at that moment in any one of those experiences thought, oh, this is formative oh, this is formative. Oh, this is formative. It's giving me this tool. It has nothing to do with the plan that I wrote when I was probably like seven years old. In fact, the plan is meaningless. Uh, But on reflection, they all laddered up to my ability to take on that particular challenge. And in fact, I think we're instrumental in helping me out of um, the valley of despair. And and, and I think you, as an entrepreneur, and as all of you know, in the journey, you end up in the valley of despair. That moment at the bottom of, the, sure. the curve where you're like i don't even know what to do next i don't know where to go from here yeah and what i realized later in life after getting out of the valley of despair again each of those experiences gave me the tools to be able to get out of the valley of despair to recognize what it was to figure out what i needed to do yeah. and then to get out of it i realized the valley of despair is about the need to learn something really important mm. and that that moment and experience in that journey for me at the time the valley of despair was related to a startup that I opened and then had to close because it wasn't going to accomplish the thing that it was intended to, and I'd put all of my energy and focus into it. And so I had to kill this thing that I loved,
2: mm. that I absolutely
1: mm. loved, that I believed in, because I had to acknowledge it wasn't going to accomplish the thing, only to be able to create the birth of something even what I believe right. to be significantly greater. Yeah, but what got me out of the valley of despair was the recognition that I had something really important to learn. The second I learned it, that was the step out.
2: Oh and man. I,
1: And so in my journey, I realized that those values of despair that people have are really critical moments of learning. And then if I go back to every single one of those moments in Washington, in Afghanistan, in Terror Square, I had to learn something at that moment to accomplish just that small task that I had or the initiative that I was focused on. They laddered up to the learning in 2012, and that laddered up to the learning I needed to do in the Valley of Despair in whatever it was, 2000 uh, and something. Now, once I learned it, I was out. And so now when I find myself in that valley, I find myself recognizing and looking around me like, what do I have to learn? What do I have to learn? What do I have to learn? What am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? And that I find gets you up way faster. If you oh recognize that's why you're there. That's why you're there. All of a sudden it's a puzzle. Yeah, It's not the place in the world. It's just a puzzle. You figure out the puzzle, you move on to the next level.
0: Amazing. That's so great. I am not going to take the time to resummarize that profound insight now because i need to process it and digest it i'm going to promise my listeners that in the summary at the end of this episode we're going to dive into the insights that just came from that little pearl about the valley of despair i think it's quite remarkable and i think it le- it's a great place to leave us we could talk for hours i'm sure and we will on another occasion but i just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this i know you are stretched in so many different ways with your company with your volunteer work And to take the time to do this means a lot to me. So thank you so much for doing that.
1: Thank you, Shaquille. I'm very grateful to be here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I look forward to talking again and to hearing what your listeners have to say.
0: Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. That conversation was incredible. Farhan not only talks fast, he fills each sentence with such depth of insight. So here's what I took away. First was the idea That we need to beware of seeking ideas that only validate our existing beliefs. Our brains are evolutionarily wired to do so. We all, and especially leaders, need to make special effort to seek out information, insights, ideas, perspectives that challenge our notions. Recognize that thinking happens as much outside the brain as it does inside the brain. Our brain gets cues from visual, emotional, and spatial stimuli whether we realize it or not. Let Farhan's hindsight be your foresight. When you are in a valley, a difficult spot, remembering that the difficult circumstance is a precursor to tremendous growth and learning. If you can accept that, while you feel the pain of your current reality, you can lean into the future with an open learning mindset and squeeze every bit of opportunity out of the challenge. If you want to learn more about what Farhan and his team are doing, go to digitalpublicsquare.org. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, and have a great day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, or share it. I want to say thank you to one of my favorite bands, Late Night Conversations, for sharing their song Chaos with me and letting me use it in this episode. You can learn more about them on Instagram at lncconnected. And here's more of their song, Chaos, to take you out.